coming to the end of the day, and uh, it's about a week since we arrived. We arrived about this time um, last week. I don't know whether it seems like a long or a short week to you. (laughs) Time is very relative. But for me, it's it's actually flown past very quickly. It feels like a very precious time for us. It's been a very hectic, um, I was going to say a few months, but I think it's been a hectic year or a few years. <laughs> I don't know when it hasn't been hectic. <laughs> but this guy, these guy house retreats, because we tend to do a shorter retreats. I have been doing anyway the last, yeah, so um, this guy house retreat gives an opportunity to spend a bit longer working with the meditation, and in a very sort of committed atmosphere. And so for us, it's a precious opportunity also uh, to stop for a while and disengage, and to have the opportunity to maybe observe a little more carefully some of the underlying attitudes that affect attitudes of mind that affect our relationship to life maybe sometimes those attitudes can be quite subtle we don't always see them thought forms or feelings that have been conditioned into the mind at various points of our life a lot of it actually from childhood, a lot of very basic or fundamental feeling tones almost about the world around us gets conditioned in quite early on. Different emotions, different states, having the chance to perhaps see some of those and in the seeing being a little, just a little bit more free, a bit more spacious. But as we all know, uh, as we've said many times, it it takes quite a lot of uh, application, effort to keep going. But there's an interesting saying that once one's awakened a little bit, even a little bit, it's hard to go back to sleep, (laughs) even if you'd like to. And I'm sure all of us at times would really like to. We can doze for a while. But once we know, uh, have some, even a little bit of insight into the path, we know that there's a possibility of living uh, in a way that's a bit freer from habit patterns that might be unhelpful to us, even when we know that little bit, then we know we can't really ever deny that knowing. Something uh, keeps prodding us to keep going, and usually that something is the feeling of dukkha. Maybe it's desire to get somewhere better. We were talking about desire earlier, but also uh, dukkha, which we sometimes see, see as an enemy, something that troubles us, is actually a friend. 
Uh, it's the most perfect teacher because it's the dukkha that will give us a very accurate reflection uh, about where where we're out of balance, where we're holding, what we need to look at. And the feeling of dukkha keeps sort of keeps at us really, keeps us uh, sharp if we can develop the right relationships to the dukkha, to see it as a, as a teacher, to see it as something that's bringing us home. So a lot of this retreat has been about finding that right relationship or the right view, seeing clearly, uh, not through uh, grasping or avoidance, but being willing, taking the patience just to see, be with the moment. So this takes some uh, motivation in talking about different ways, different concentrations to motivate our practice. Uh, I was talking about that earlier in the retreat. But, uh, sometimes they boil it down to what they call the four great efforts. Or the motivation translates into this whole area of effort. Effort is not always an easy word. And sometimes we hear a lot about effortless, effortlessness, <laughs> being effortlessness, <laughs> effortlessness. <laughs> now my pronunciations are a bit strange sometimes. You'll have to. <laughs> but these, but really, that's about how we bring our life into the path. Uh, these four great efforts, the two first ones, the effort to avoid um, avoid unwholesome states, to actually consciously avoid uh, conditions that will bring to us uh, unwholesome or suffering states, recognizing them and avoiding them. Connected with that, the second great effort is, if they have arisen already, in learning to, uh, they use the word overcome, overcome unwholesome states, or transcend, or through this practice of clear seeing, dissolving from the potency of states of mind that are that are suffering. But then the other balancing side of those two aspects of effort, which we've been looking at today, is to develop wholesome states, positive states. And having developed them, learning how to maintain them so they can carry us. So this, a lot of this practice, these concentrations on kindness, on compassion, practices of patience, uh, heart of sharing, generous heart, practices of resolution, renunciation, equanimity, all these are developing the wholesome a wholesome, positive mind. It's not, one couldn't say it's uh, liberation in itself. There's still, uh, one would say it's the, the end of the journey to develop a wholesome, uh, wholesome state, but it's a very significant part. And it's interesting that <clears throat> in uh, the classical, another classical formula of the teachings of the Buddha, we've talked about sila samadhi panya, as the past is divided up. Sila, the 
moral foundation, samadhi, the collectiveness, and panya, the wisdom. But another classical way is divided sometimes into three aspects called dana, sila, bhavana, dana as the basis uh, of our relationship also to life. It's the energy, if you like, that the generous heart, the sharing heart, the energy that allows us to connect with the world around us and no longer separating it so much between what belongs to me and what's mine and, and uh, what do I own and possess, but more seeing the whole and responding uh, through a heart that's willing to, to share and to give in situations where it's appropriate. So this whole energy of dana, sila, the restraint, so the, the, the dana is the sharing, if you like, of the wholesome, the, the sila, the restraint, precept training, and the pawana, we've been doing the development, the cultivation of heart, cultivation of mind. And these, as we do these, sometimes in our meditation practice we might just want to go straight to emptiness (laughs) and not bother about some of these more seemingly tedious uh, practices of cultivating precepts and uh, generosity and kindliness and metta. It can all seem like, you know, oh, yeah, it's a goody-goody. <laughs> and yeah, it just gives me the wisdom teachings. And I'm just in- interested in, in just seeing the illusory nature, the dreamlike nature of this world, the shimmering, empty, uh, uh, dwelling in the transcendent here and now Dharma. <laughs> nice thought. <laughs> and obviously that's important. That's why we, you know, the meditation is to bring that as a realization. But this foundation, the building in our actual life of this dana and sila, the parameters, the spiritual virtues, if you like, using the whole of our, the vehicle of our life to build these, is really developing, uh, a po- if you like, a positive sense of self, a positive ego structure, positive um, flow of karmic consciousness. It's not, it's not freedom from that, uh, necessarily from the identification with the flow of karma, but it is a foundation which enables uh, the samadhi and the panya to arise. So this, this, this aspect is really about when we go from this situation to everyday life, the opportunities to develop this uh, wholesome positive state as a foundation. And sometimes in the, it's interesting, if you look in the, in, into uh, working in a therapeutic sense, in therapy, which a lot of meditators at a certain point turn to therapy to look maybe at issues, unresolved emotional issues, um, things that uh, block us from our previous conditioning. A lot of um, that deals sometimes with a, a, a not a very healthy ego or integrated ego structure. It helps us to look again, to maybe undo um, patterns that have been destructive for us that uh, don't really allow us to uh, be in relationship to others, to the, especially to others, in a, in a sustained and loving way. Maybe difficult to have intimate relationships, to have sustained relationships. Some of these karmic patterns can really hinder us. So the therapy is one way of looking with another person in dialogue 
of being guided, if you like, and supported. And it's very complementary with the whole approach of Vipassana meditation. And in that process of, of working with another, in a way, undoing uh, some of the destructive mind states, emotions, yeah. and and cultivating, a, if you like, a positive, a more fulfilled, a more um, loving, self-loving, integrated. And in a way, this this is part of, you could say this is part of the Eightfold Path. This is part of the whole path of cultivating the positive, cultivating the good, letting go of the the hindering, the, the, the obstacles. But in the, in the traditional way, when we work in our everyday life, developing, say, these parameters, it also has the same effect. Over a period of time, maybe it's quite a gentle approach, but over a period of time, working in a way where we no longer, say, just work for our own ends in life, you know, to become, um, just following our own ambitions, maybe to be wealthy or powerful or acclaimed in some way or another, but, I mean, not that those necessarily have to be bad, but to, to also allow ourselves to work in a, in a way of service, using our energy, our work, our relationships to be partly uh, using them as a realm for developing a feeling of service, a feeling of uh, some of these spiritual virtues, then automatically in time, uh, one cultivates a, a balanced and healthy, um, good sense of self. This is why, why these are seen as the foundations of the path. <clears throat> but it's not the end in itself, because then the more subtle insights allow us to transcend both the positive, the wholesome and the unwholesome. So ultimately, one is neither um, attaching to either. But on a relative level, it's, it's helpful to have the, like a wholesome base, a positive base, a, a positive sense of self-worth in life. If we take in the meta this morning, I touched very briefly on the whole uh, idea of the Bodhisattva. If we take that as a something we can help motivate us, or it's a thought form first of all that we develop in the heart and the mind, the sense of uh, fundamentally wanting to uh, cultivate the Dharma not only for our own benefit, but so that we can help all living beings. That's the sort of ideal of the Bodhisattva. It's not just, um, I'm doing this for me, but uh, ultimately we're connected. So as we grow and develop, we're helping to enlighten the whole. And so it's this feeling of, uh, sometimes it's put more classically, how is it, as long as space endures and all sentient beings remain, may I too abide to dispel the miseries of the world. And that can... That's a very beautiful, and I, I find it a very important contemplation, but it can be a bit overwhelming if one's feeling a bit sort of 
Um, you know, like you don't know how you're going to get through the next hour. Never mind about enduring until space. <laughs> as long as space remains, it can sound very daunting. So I'd just like to talk talk a bit about this and perhaps different ways of reflecting um, on this teaching, which appears um, quite strongly uh, in the Buddha's teaching and is emphasised highly, especially in the Mahayana. I think when I first uh, started myself on this path, I, I really couldn't handle that thought um, very easily because I was suffering so much. And my main focus was to work with that you know, suffering. And if I'm truthful, I really, um, my main motivation was just wanting to somehow not uh, exist. That's been a very deep, we talk about tendencies to work with. I think one of my deepest tendencies is somehow not just wanting to be here. <laughs> you know, using meditation, spiritual life to sort of perhaps even reach a disembodied state somehow and to evolve, uh, d- dissolve uh, into the ether, into some radiant spiritual realm, and not having to bother with anything. <laughs> It was very appealing to me at first. And so the whole language of getting off the wheel of birth and death, leaving behind samsara, leaving the burning house, and my mind would go, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. <laughs> you know, the language of being around until, uh, you know, throughout time, for the welfare of all living beings. No, I can't, I can't even handle the person sitting next to me, never mind, <laughs> being here for, for all living beings. I wasn't initially, my initial uh, contact with, if you like, spiritual things wasn't really about from a place of suffering, it was really from a place of uh, opening and joy. I, I think my very first contact was actually through yoga when I was at school. I was about 13 or 14, and we just moved uh, to South, I think Southampton. We moved several times when I was a kid, and we landed up in a new place, in a new school, and I couldn't make initially friends very easily, so I was quite lonely, so I used to hang out in the library. And one day I picked up a book on yoga, this must have been in the late 60s, early 70s, and it fascinated me to see these sort of Indian people with long beards and hair sort of twisted up in knots. And so I thought, I'd like to do that. <laughs> that looks good. So, and then it talked about vegetarianism, and I'd never thought about vegetarianism before. And for the first time it struck me that, um, that meat was actually animals. For some reason I hadn't thought about it before. <laughs> I was actually eating animals, and then I suddenly felt very repulsed by the idea, so I decided I'm going to become a vegetarian. But in those days there wasn't really any... I mean, there wasn't any other vegetarian that I knew of in the world. I mean, it just didn't exist. It certainly wasn't whole foods and tofu and uh, macrobiotic diets and all of that. So for the next year, I lived off cheese sandwiches and egg curry. That's what I knew. And I actually didn't like vegetables very much. And then I used to come home from school and twist myself in knots according to this book. <laughs> And that sort of went on. That was quite an intense period. That went on for about a year until I came out in boils from the result of this diet. 
and the coming out in boils coincided with the discovery of boys, discotheques and pubs. And suddenly, twisting myself in knots didn't seem so appealing. So that all got pushed to one side <laughs> for the next few years. <laughs> but the strands were there somehow, and they sort of reappeared later uh, when I was at art school. And uh, I started to hang out with one of the sort of the arty people, which was very exciting. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> the particular group that I started to hang out with were into sort of exploring, um, exploring all sorts of things, but exploring sort of new uh, consciousness, I suppose, in, in weird and wonderful ways. And the first thing we started to do, I got introduced to, was an encounter group. Now, I didn't know what that was about, but it was about partly about uh, expressing feelings. That was very exciting for me, because if you've been brought up in the south of England, then as you, well, some of you might know, that it's... <laughs> Feelings, the expression of feelings is uh, not something that's high on the agenda. It's a sort of fairly uh, low, sort of grade, repressive, slightly negative conditioning. And as a, you know, to, I remember when I was a teenager first going to what we would call Europe, <laughs> continental Europe, never thought we were part of Europe at that point. <laughs> I remember going to Spain and France and seeing very overwhelmed because people would express, they're so much more expressive and express their feelings and emotions and I really didn't know how to handle that. Uh, I wouldn't have articulated that was going on at that time but looking back that really was a very sort of shaky energy for me. So going into these encounter groups and for the, probably the first time in my life beginning to talk about how I felt and you know how we all felt and being more open not being so constricted in this kind of uh, up, up, fairly repressive upbringing. And John Cleese said, being, being English can be a drag. <laughs> <laughs> and that took us into experimenting. We carried on and got back into my yoga, experimenting with various... Um, uplifting substances, one sort or another, mind-expanding chemicals, <laughs> which actually opened the mind, opened my mind and my heart and allowed me, if you like, to step out of the... to realise dimensions of my being that I'd never seen or knew that they were there. And so I felt I needed to somehow understand that or to follow it or pursue it. And it was actually a very... Uh, expansive, uh, happy time in my life as a student. But it got it got a little bit um, difficult to sustain my studies with all this uh, experimentation. And I think a point came <laughs> when there was a parting of ways between myself and the art college, and that point was when we were asked to go out on an assignment to draw Southampton Docks, Dockland. And I came back with mine, and then we had to put our pictures on the wall, and the teacher assessed our pictures. And my picture was just, um, the piece of paper was just covered in dots. Because at that point, I was having a hard time holding any solid reality together. I just, everything was just uh, so much dissolving for me. And the teacher looked at it, and he just was, he wasn't very impressed. <laughs> and gradually, my my interest in sustaining my art career started to fade and what started to become more important to me 
were ways to try and uh, explore this whole spiritual realm. So that took us, my friends and I, into our first meditation retreat in Oxford. Uh, same place Gidisara, funny enough, was in uh, where we... Uh, I didn't know what I was walking into. It was a Burmese monk. We got up at four and we sat for 12 hours in this room every day. Didn't walk, no chanting, no discussions, no sort of soothing kind of sounds <laughs> from anyone. All I, all of the monks said was just observe, just observe for ten days. And after about five days, I felt like I'd been there for about fifty years because <laughs> every every minute seemed so hellishly long. So I decided I was going to make a break for it. So I packed my bag and I thought, well. The particular place where it was was a large, old, sort of, not exactly a stately home, but it was a sort of mansion with big glass windows at the front that after lunch people would sit so they could see down the driveway. So I thought, well, I can't escape down the driveway because everyone will see me. So I'll, I'll climb through the, over the fence and go down through the next field, which was overgrown and sifily and thorny and full of nettles. And I sort of made my way through this field and down to the road. And I thought, ah, oh, out of here. But something, something in me thought, no, no, I've, I've got to go back and finish this off. I've got to <laughs> see this through. So I ended up going back and carrying on for another 50 years, which was actually just five days, <laughs> to the end, of, the end of the retreat. And the whole experience was, was actually very bad. And, <laughs> and I, I might have had about maybe three minutes of being able to watch my breath one day. <laughs> I actually got a moment's peace. I used to sit at the back against the wall and opposite me was a guy that was also in agony. We used to give each other these sympathetic looks like, you know. And the only thing I really remember about that retreat was the food. <laughs> but there was something, it's interesting how something within us that's beyond our rational mind, I believe, um, if there's what one might call ancient affinities, a connectedness or a resonance with the Dharma, something in us recognises, and certainly for me wasn't a rational thing, something pulls us or carries us on. We find ourselves attracted, even if it's, as that experience was, uh, very difficult. And then, gradually, I became a retreat junkie. I don't know how that happened, but... It happened where I just ended up doing one retreat after another, and this very sustained, focused, samadhi-type practices where one would would uh, get into these very refined states of consciousness, but really unable to integrate it very easily into everyday life. So I'd leave and then go back to another retreat, leave and go back to another retreat. And in the middle of, of uh, this process, after a few years, I met Ajahn Chah, and uh, something, and Ajahn Sumedho and the monks, and something in his being and his style of teaching, which wasn't so much about depending on holding a particular state of mind, trying to refine the consciousness endlessly, so some, at some point you might lift off and evaporate, and suffering would just cease in this big bang, and you'd be enlightened. The enlightenment was more like this thing that was going to just happen one day, and you'd never feel any suffering anymore. I think the whole experience of being with Ajahn Chah and that lineage and the monks was really about 
slowly, slowly establishing what we've been talking about, maybe right view, or balanced view, or seeing uh, the Dharma in a way that allows it to be more integrated, the practice more integrated into every level of one's life, which of course is an ongoing process. But part of that process was the beginning of the relationship with suffering, the whole contemplation around dukkha. And part of what we were doing this afternoon is not just uh, seeing it, seeing that you know, this idea of letting go is not just, it's not, letting go is not aversion. Sometimes letting go is that I'm really, you, we feel something and we're trying to let go, but really there's some aversion. It's more like I just don't want this to be the way it is. Before we can really let go, we have to accept, we have to allow. So this metta is really allowing, opening heart to connect and receive how it is, even if it is difficult. So this movement, first of all, from just trying to get away, away from embodied worldly existence, was a slight beginning, slowly, slowly, a different movement towards being more willing to open and meet suffering not seeing it as something, not feeling so um, constricted by it. And this is where the language more of compassion and the the bodhisattva began to take more root. Because initially when the Buddha talks about leaving the burning house, really it's it's a stage I think that one, many people go through. There's suffering and one's motivated to free oneself a bit, to get clear. One doesn't really, uh, sometimes even is able to think very much about the world around one or other people. It's just a process of... And so the language of detachment, dispassion, letting go, transcendence is very apt for that phase. sort of journey of almost retreat, the journey of, and so that we can actually realize, again, what we've been working on this week, realize the place of true abiding. So we're not just sort of being banged around by the ups and downs of life, but in a way that's a necessary journey, in a way to disengage, to see the world perhaps in a more detached way, for the sake of realizing a heart, a peaceful heart, for knowing the abiding in awareness. But then we can't, we, that's like half the journey, if you like. That this retreat, in a way, symbolizes that part of the journey. Literally retreating. But the other part is having to then go out and meet the conditions, work with the conditions, work in the world, be in the world. If one takes this this uh, bodhisattva vow, as long as space endures and as long as sentient beings remain, may I too abide to dispel the miseries of the world. If we take that 
as an ego statement, then it's pretty impossible. But I, my contemplation is that's not really what it's about. It's just, rather than basing the journey on me getting somewhere, me getting out of suffering, the whole premise that we're operating from is me going somewhere, it starts to get questioned as the subtlety of insight develops. Even the starting point, me, as a construct, as a reality going somewhere, starts to be revealed as an empty, as something that is is fundamentally empty, of any real solidity. So when that starts to get seen, then that whole sense of me going somewhere, me getting off the wheel, is unsustainable. It has a certain level of application, but on a more profound level, there, there isn't ultimately me going anywhere. There's just being here. And in being here, what else is there to do but just to be with the way things are? timelessly as they unfold. It's no longer an issue of time. And so I think contemplating it in a more deeper way what this Bodhisattva vow means, it's in a way allowing us to relax. Just to timelessly be here. After all, where are we all busily going? (laughs) What are we busily doing and trying to achieve? And so it's a sort of, in a way, it's a, a more subtle, if you like, mudra of being, shift of understanding that allows us... You know, when someone comes up to us and we're busy meditating to get free from suffering, and they ask us something, then they're a bother, because we're going somewhere, we're doing something. It's like when I, when, when I came home from my first retreat and tried to set up my own meditation practice, in the student house I was living in, I had my room, set up my... Christian sat down and this ice cream van pulled out and played this inane, you know, and in the end I rushed out and told him, would you mind going away, disturbing my meditation? <laughs> so it's me sort of trying to get somewhere. And it's that's the shift from trying to get out of suffering into the heart of the Bodhisattva is more just allowing whatever comes to us to be part of what we're timelessly abiding with, whatever being, whatever state, whatever condition. So we, we in a way, start in that contemplation, free ourselves so much from the binding of time, me in this lifetime. I've got to get it down in this lifetime, otherwise, God, I'll have to come back again. <laughs> I mean, it was, for me, that was a terrible thought at one stage. I mean, going to school again, going to teenage years, and spots, and I mean, oh God, I, I don't know if I could cope with that. <laughs> so, as we're working in paradoxes, you started talking about the paradox of the desire, the desire to end desire, <laughs> the path. And uh, the path and being here and now, where there's no path. The self and no self. The one that sees contemplates all living beings as a parent would their only child. Contemplates all living beings exchanging their suffering into yours 
allowing the heart to be that wide, that vast, to resonate, to be patient, to be spacious. Balancing that end of the paradox with seeing all conditioned dharmas. Whatever dharma, the dharma of liking and disliking, fear and aversion, love and hate, day and night, male and female, seeing all all dharmas as dreams, as illusions, bubbles, shadows like dewdrops, like a lightning flash, contemplate them thus.
magnificent of salutation of the triple gem and the package of encouragement.
भगवतो अर्हतो समुत सिखा 